And so that's what I think of my job often. You know, I talk about a lot about this an inverted pyramid. I don't sit at the top of DocuSign and tell 4,000 people what to do. I sit at the bottom of 4,000 people and say, how do I enable them to do their business well? Hello, world. This is Byron Dieter, and you're listening to Cloud Giants, brought to you by Bessemer Venture Partners. On Cloud Giants, we talk to entrepreneurs, founders, and leaders who are building world-changing cloud companies. I'm here today with Dan Springer of DocuSign. At Bessemer Venture Partners, we are proud to have been investors in DocuSign. And over this time, Dan has become not only a role model and mentor to many of our CEOs across our portfolio, but also a personal friend. DocuSign, for the three of you out there who may not yet know, allows organizations to manage electronic agreements and overall helps to make the world more agreeable. Today, we're going to talk with him about coming back from being a single dad to lead DocuSign as their CEO. So Dan, let's jump right into it. This show is about cloud companies and the people who have gone on to build things bigger than themselves. But let's talk about your inspiration. What was your first memory of tech and computers and what pulled you into this crazy world to begin with? Yeah, it's a good question. My first experience might be relevant to people who know the history of the Northwest where I grew up and I went to Lakeside High School, same school that Bill Gates and Paul Allen went to. And my first experience was learning how to do a, a version of basic programming in the same lab, the same uh, computer lab that they built their first project together. And I'd like to say that led directly to an incredible career in tech, but it didn't at all. And I had no real uh, tech experience. In fact, I was famously known in my years in McKinsey when the internet first came out of saying it was going to be a hula hoop and it was going to be a fad that was gone. So um, it really wasn't until much later, uh, post-business school, that I ended up having a career in tech. So you missed your CTO and VP of engineering calling, exactly. went down this business and sales path that's worked out okay for you. You jumped from a mainstream career to make the jump into founding responses. Let's talk a little bit about that as um, one of your seminal career moments and probably the anchor to get our listeners started. Uh, what was the inspiration for responses? And talk us through those early days. So the company was actually founded um, in 1998. And it was sort of lost its way. And so there was sort of a restart or refounding in 2004 uh, when I joined as CEO. And it was a company that uh, was shrinking uh, down to about 75 people. Uh, revenue was down to about 15 after a peak of about 25. And this was post-economic meltdown, dot-com crash. It was post-crash. But it was it really, it was, a, it was an ASP software company. That's back what we called before there was SaaS. There we go. The application service provider world. Well done. And it was an email marketing company, or ESP. And I had been a customer. So the inspiration, I'd been a customer of the platform and thought it was a really good platform, but incredibly poorly run. And I sort of, to your point about not being a VP engineering type, realized if I were ever going to be successful running a company, it needed to have a really good technology platform. And it was okay if it was poorly run, because I thought that was an area where I could add some real value. And that really was the focus, to come in and leverage a great platform and turn it into a great value for customers. So tech is notoriously a tough industry to lead turnarounds in and around. And you, I think, led a little bit of this, which is to say that the team is an essential part of it. Talk us through the first hires and the first moves you made when coming into responses in those days. Yeah, well, the first thing was survival. And just like a lot of, it was like a startup experience from that standpoint. We didn't have a ton of capital and we had some burn. 
Um, and so the answer was sort of get to a place where we were break even. So before I really started remaking the team, there was some work to be done just around a restructuring that was actually fairly straightforward. But it was 2004, and you're right, it was post-crash, but the market hadn't really started to pick up yet, so we were fortunate. Two years later, it would have been really hard to do a turnaround because the the war for talent would have been aggressive. Uh, But in terms of the the process, I went through and sort of looked at the biggest challenges first, and instead of trying to make a big change to the management team all at once, I kind of did one step at a time. And I always sort of use the analogy, um, some of these people will be too young out there, but it used to be you put together a stereo, and you sort of had like an amplifier, and you had speakers, the components. Totally lost on many of our listeners, I'm sure. Exactly. And so the construct was you don't want to have one great component and everything else crummy, because the lowest common denominator sort of gets you there. But so you start doing your upgrading one at a time and you start moving up what's the lowest you know common denominator you have um, and that's what I did and over the course of about a year and a half um, did completely make uh, the senior leadership team so everyone uh, a year and a half out was new and but the, the challenge was to try to do it in a fashion where it didn't feel so disruptive and by doing one at a time and making sure that person was integrated and getting on board with the vision then you went to get to the next one. And so as a, for the company, for the employees there, it didn't feel that disruptive. And I think that helped us uh, really stabilize the business. So you made an important comment there, which I think people often consider eras of uh, founding companies as either good or bad. But I think you shine a light on the fact that there are good and bad parts of any time. And your comment was, even though the financial environment was lousy in 2004 to build a company, you actually felt you had an advantage in terms of attracting talent. As one of those businesses that was viable, that had a path ahead of it, you were able to get world-class execs to join a company that perhaps in another era they may not have been willing to bet on um, because of the, the macro environment at the time. Sometimes you're in a situation, particularly for early stage companies, where you just can't go out and get six all-stars to come to your team because you haven't shown enough traction. And you sort of need to get a couple that are a little bit better. Maybe you need to hire someone that's significantly better than what you've got, but not that person you want in the long term. We actually did that on the engineering side. So I went out and hired a person that I knew was not going to be the long-term leader of our engineering team, but I also knew he was the best person I could get at that time. And so we were very clear about that and thought about it as a stage appropriate stage appropriate. And I'm thrilled that you clarified that because a lot of times those questions come up, which is, am I hiring the long term CMO or CFO? um, And what is success? And your point is you always want to be essentially boxing above your weight class a little bit and getting the world class person for your stage and time accepting that maybe that's a two or four year journey and that there may still be another answer downstream. And there are people who've built careers in the Valley that sort of have that, you know, whether it's 5 to 15 or whatever it might be, and they say, that's what I do. And it can be okay to say this isn't the person that's going to take us to 500. We need to, we need to get to 15. And I want to get into the DocuSign uh, story here in a minute, so I'm going to gloss over a lot of the responses days, but those learnings we want to come back to. However, let's talk about the IPO and the M&A decision with responses. Because you, you've made different decisions at different points in your career, obviously. Responsus was a fantastic journey, highly valued, multi-billion dollar company. You ultimately chose to sell to Oracle. Reflect on why specifically you made that decision. And with the benefit of hindsight, was it the right decision as you look at what's happened at the cloud industry since? Yeah. I think there's two things I think would be instructive from Responsus. The first thing is I told you about the kind of the early days, the refounding of the turnaround. And it was, you know, it was a little tricky. Uh, there was a, there was a little touch and go, and so I became uh, sort of conservative in thinking about the business. So the first mistake that we ended up, I think, surviving, 
was I probably didn't grow fast enough. Once we got things turned around and things were going great and we were number one forester in our space and everyone was sort of talking about responses, responses as a leader in the email service provider space. And then we sort of rebranded as the marketing cloud and we were getting some pretty good traction. Um, we were positive, cash flow positive from after one year. It's a novel concept these it days. It was, yeah. Very, it was novel then, actually. Uh, but the construct was, what do we do now? Do we invest more aggressively? And a lot of folks showed up, like yourself, with big checkbooks saying, we'd like to put more capital into this business and you could grow faster. And we didn't. And we sort of stayed profitable. And then as we got closer to an IPO decision, as you know, you start talking to bankers. Once you show them that first deck that shows you're profitable... Kind of it's can't hard go back. Yeah, it's yep. kind of hard and and people it. had been rewarded for playing defense for years. To your yes. point, survival was a victory, nonetheless, to grow successfully right. in that time. And so you were in the, the top decile um, right out of the gates. Yeah. And we were a very popular IPO because we when we came out you know, in 2011, there hadn't been a lot of companies going public. After the you know kind of the meltdown, two thousand nine, and so so people looked at us and said we were high growth and we were profitable. Isn't it great? And we were therefore an attractive IPO. But by taking that approach, it made it harder when some of our competitors started to raise bigger amounts of capital, build sales teams more aggressively, enter international they were leaning markets into faster. The growth story where you they were, were in the growth story. story, and we were st- and you get a little bit stuck because once you've delivered a certain amount of profitability, it's very very difficult. So a lot of times people, you know, entrepreneurs will get this uh, sort of advice from people. They say, before you go public, start losing a lot of money, just bury it in the backyard. It doesn't really matter because you want to show you've got a path to improvement. And I always sort of bristled at that too, just because it sort of you know it offends my sensibility as a business person. On the flip side, I actually think there's some sound counsel there. You shouldn't bury it in the backyard, but maybe do a little branding campaign. Maybe do a few things that you're not requiring to deliver those results. If they do, great for setting your long-term growth. But it does give you a little bit of coverage when you decide you might have some investment needs in the future that you haven't thought through. So um, I think that's an important piece. And then in terms of the decision, post-IPO, a couple years later, we did sell to Oracle. Um, And I think it was the right choice to stay independent and go public. I do think it was the right choice to sell. I don't think we needed to sell that year. Or, but what started to happen is all the traditional enterprise software companies started buying email service providers. And the industry had gone through this once before where it had been the direct marketing agencies had bought the email companies. So, so you had things like you know, Experian was buying them. Axiom were buying email marketing companies. And then Responsus was left as the independent. And guess what? You know, we kicked ass. We, we took a lot of share because of that. Now we have sort of Salesforce uh, buying exact target as an example. We started seeing the, the marketing clouds were becoming a thing. Then. Becoming a thing. Uh, Adobe bought Neolane. Neolane was truly a strong competitor in that space, but it was that was their answer. And Shantanu at that time did not want to do on top of the Omniture deal, a giant deal. So we kind of looked around and said, the nature of competition may be changing. Either this is an opportunity for us to clean up, and we'll never know what would have happened again, or we were going to be odd man out you know, last man standing uh, at that at that keg. So we sort of think it was a good decision at that time. Um, there weren't a lot of buyers left. And interestingly, Oracle had already bought Eloqua, which is more of a B2B focus. But so this is their second, you know, dip. Um, and SAP had been very interested. We, we, there were still a few out there. But um, I was a little bit concerned for, as I thought about my shareholders, that I might end up in a situation where we could go into a, to a lull and start finding that we weren't, we weren't in the same game of competition anymore. Now people were saying, this is my platform, and I'm not really sure. I, really, I already had Oracle. I already have you know, what have you. This is just another piece I'm going to put in that mix. So that's what motivated me to look at it. And um, it was a good, I think it was a good deal, as you said, and we had a very high multiple, uh, and it was fine. But you could clearly make an argument. We'll never know in hindsight. 
and say it may have been that we would have seen, given what's happened with SaaS valuations, uh, uh, an increase in the value over that period of time. Uh, but it was, it was a good time, 10-year run, and it was a good run. Now, at that point, you sort of dropped the mic. You probably had every recruiter in the Valley on your doorstep uh, pitching you the, the next hot pre-IPO CEO gig, and you took a left turn. Uh, talk us through your decision there to leave the industry and become a stay-at-home dad. Uh, many people out there fantasize about doing this, including myself, by the way, as a founder who had three kids during that journey, yet few have the conviction to do it. And so what gave you the conviction to do it? Um, and what went through your mind during those weeks making the decision? Yeah, it's an interesting question because most people have the same phrasing that you do of what an important and big decision. I think it was almost a non-decision for me, really. Um, I just had a great finish to a 10-year run. Uh, I had become a single parent uh, about six months before that. So I was trying to balance, you know, two uh, middle schoolers and a public company gig. And to be, you know, blunt about it, I wasn't doing great. I want to be at least an eight, and I was maybe a six on each. But but it wasn't bad. It wasn't like I, I would say I wasn't able to perform either, you know, role, but I just felt stretched all the time. Which, by the way, I suspect every CEO listener out there who's also a parent, male, female, you know, tech or not, has had those exact same thoughts. Like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really sub-optimizing um, on both fronts right now. Yeah, yeah, it's a frustrating, as you said, not to deliver at the quality you want to for everything you do. So to me, when Oracle kind of made the choice and Safra said to me, we either want you to be here like long-term. And I said, two years is long-term. I signed up. And she goes, no, no, long-term. I said, I'm not signing up for more than two years. And she said, we'd rather rip the Band-Aid off. And I said, great. And then I got home that afternoon and said, I'm free. And this is awesome. (laughs) Uh, And for two days, your boys said, great. And by day three, they're like, you're still here, Dad? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, it wasn't until much later that became a challenge, only with my younger son. (laughs) But but in all seriousness, um, it was just the obvious thing to do. Uh, and it was the it was the best career decision I've ever made in my life. I know it sounds funny to say not having a job is a career decision, but it is. And it was wonderful for uh, getting my one son all the way through high school and off to college. He graduates this year, so they, they do come back. Congratulations. Thank awesome. you. Yeah. And then my young son was, was about to go to college, and so I felt that it was ready. And he was the one that said I was crowding him a little bit, so maybe go get a job, Dad. Uh, but it was a great run. I did do some investing. I worked with an advent, a private equity firm. They were trying to get into tech. Uh, I did join several boards. So it wasn't that I didn't do anything, but the big difference when I was nine to five was the only time I ever worked when the kids were at school. I went to every soccer game, every lacrosse game. I was at everything. I, I was on the board of their school, the urban school, fantastic independent school in San Francisco. And I was just totally immersed in being a dad. And it was uh, both professionally and personally the best decision I ever made. So for people that may not be prepared to make that move, but are thinking through the same issue. Now that you've obviously seen it from both sides, the extreme uh, CEO role and the um, extreme dad role, what advice do you have and how have you approached things differently as a CEO the next time with that perspective? One thing that's been really interesting is people make this construct uh, around being a stay-at-home dad and describe like how strange it is. And usually people say, you're at the top of your game. And as you said, all these people must be calling you for these great deals. And I have this sort of thing I've developed over time. Some of my feminist friends say, if I were a woman, I don't think people would be asking that question. They sort of say, well, 
you should have been staying home with your kids anyway a little bit. I mean, isn't it? Interesting. You know, and, yep. and so it is the something I think for two dudes issues. sitting here. We should be aware of we have these biases. I think I probably had a, a little bit of that bias myself at the time, and I've been educated, as we like to say. Feedback is a gift. Thank you for all the women and men who are great feminists that have given me that you know perspective that I, that I probably missed. Uh, what I learned is the, if you're doing work, but you're really working 9 to 5, and what I mean by that is at 5 o'clock you can turn it off. Unfortunately, sometimes there's certain jobs, and CEO of a public company is one of them, it's pretty hard at 5 o'clock to turn off. And so that, I think, is the trade-off. Is can you find a role where when you have kids in some of those formative years that you can sort of turn off and put the focus on them? So that was kind of my big learning as a parent. And when I think about employees now at DocuSign, finding those opportunities so that they can have those experiences. It's one of the reasons we created the six-month parental leave program. And so when someone you know adopts a child or has a child, uh, we say if you're going to be focused on caregiving, take six months off and focus on your family. I never would have thought to do that because I wouldn't have understood uh, that the balance that people balance. are dealing dealing with. And as yeah. you said, there's um, there's ways to do it. Certainly on the how you design your hours and also the team around it. Um, but the interesting thing is, in many ways, uh, you'd won. You'd won this sort of game of tech life that most of our listeners are, are in and striving for. Uh, you, you'd had this spectacular outcome. You had been able to do an extreme life-work balance that worked for you, and then you'd kind of eased back into things a little bit with boards, both nonprofit and for-profit, um, to get some of that engagement, stimulation, impact, mentorship, et cetera. So many people look at it and say, that was actually the end state that I aspire for because I can have that balance. And yet you you then again chose to uh, throw it away, uh, if we can, um, by jumping full-time into DocuSign. And so was it that DocuSign was so damn compelling you couldn't say no? Was it that you were ready to go back and you were running a process? How did you go from that state back to now full-time public company CEO role when essentially you'd been able to design yourself out of that successfully? Yeah, it's a little bit all of the above. You know, I think the answer was, I was coming to the conclusion that I wasn't fulfilled by advisory type work. And just like when I was a McKinsey consultant, you have that moment sometimes for most, I think most consultants where you wake up and you go, gosh, we've done the strategy work and now all the fun's starting and they kind of kick, kick us out. Yeah, right? you're not the new one. <laughs> yeah. You're the advisor and it's yeah. important you walk away then yeah. and let them be And implement. you say, no, no, this is the fun part. Absolutely. And so my reaction to my new state was, this is okay, and I do like mentoring, and I like the idea when someone would put me on the board of a CEO that I thought I could really help a lot, and I did get value out of that. But what I realized, I wanted not one CEO or two CEOs to try to help. I wanted thousands of employees. And I had sort of, part of being a parent, I think I realized over time, once you actually have kids and you realize you sort of love someone more than yourself, I think you get to the point where you can get the joy and satisfaction out of helping someone in their career or their development more than you would yourself because you're sort of if you, like you said I kind of hit what I'm going to do I'm not going to do anymore I'm not going to get any better I'm I'm what I am and I'm I'm cool with that um and it doesn't mean I get I don't get better every day in my craft but I but I kind of I don't have any more steps that I'm trying to achieve and so I missed that I missed that idea of building a team and developing a team and I was just coming to that conclusion I was going to wait another six months to my younger boy Robert was sort of off to college and and DocuSign folks came and called the very beginning of their CEO search, which had been almost two years yeah, prior, they called. Yeah, a long public search, by Yeah, the very way. public. And I actually had a reaction that said, you know, I'm doing this dad thing. I'm not interested. And the first recruiter, uh, they had two recruiters by the end, uh, that came by was one I knew, and he said, look, it's two blocks from your house. We're going to get a boatload of options for you. 
And I said, dude, I just told you I'm doing this for my kids. If I now told you if you made the boatload bigger, I'd do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, the, right, the money right. was clearly not the driver at that right. point. Uh, I'd feel pretty bad about myself. So, um, so at that point, uh, I got excited. And the reality is I had my first conversation the day after Thanksgiving of 2016. I docu-signed, of course, <laughs> my offer letter on Christmas Eve. So, so my portion of the search was one of the you know, shortest searches. And I met all 11 outside board members. So it was crazy, but I just looked at this business and said, it was everything, sort of like a response, as I told you, it was a fantastic tech platform that had some things that maybe we weren't running as optimally in the business. And those were the things I thought kind of fit my skill set. And uh, who doesn't like a two-block walk to work? So. And, and there's an old adage in tech that the fifth CEO was always the most successful. <laughs> and so was that compelling to you? <laughs> At the time, I did not know I was going to be the fifth. But uh, uh, then it became very compelling to fill out the, the prophecy, so to speak. Uh, yeah, but it was great. And it really was. I mean, the, the core of it was seeing I knew how, how great the products were because I've used them. And the, the piece that I always say kind of seals the deal is you talk to someone and you say, I work at DocuSign, or in this case, when I talked to someone uh, uh, driving a ride chair, I said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to DocuSign. And he said, man, I love DocuSign. I use it for my side business. And I realized that's it. The DocuLove stories are what makes it such a special place. It's a rare enterprise business with consumer awareness and appeal. Yeah, and, and, and the appeal is the key, you know, the key component. Which also means you've got a lot of user feedback from everyone uh, out there, including Uber drivers, which can be a mixed blessing at times. Constantly, and it's but you know a lot of it's really good. A lot of it is insights. You you, know, you forget sometimes. You get all into your little powerpoints, and you realize talking to customers and users is a pretty good idea. Let's talk through the situation that you walked into. Uh, which is a, a big, complex board. Many of them had been investors for over a decade. You were the fifth CEO. Um, everyone had added value in their own ways, but very different styles and approaches. A strong balance sheet, but also a massive burn rate. And so was this one of those situations, as you said before, where you were excited about the burn rate and you wanted to, to bury money into the ground as much as you can to, to set up public expectations? Or was this something that, like responses, that you needed to fix? Yeah, well, and by my nature too, I'm just kind of cheap. You know, I just can't. I just can't handle that much waste. It just doesn't fit my my uh, personality. DocuSign, if I had joined as CEO, you know, five years earlier, would still be a very good company, but it would be a smaller company than it is today. And uh, it was, as you said, right people at the right time to get it to where it was. Uh, yeah, the burn was uh, was impressive. It was uh, it was substantial, and you know we talked. Can you about quantify it. that for our listeners since it's now on public record? One hundred fifty million dollars a year, <laughs> plus or minus among yeah. friends. But the but the pieces I would say to answer your question, like where were the hard parts? You know, we did have to think about the culture a little bit as we wanted to work on that burn. Now, fortunately, we had good growth, and we were able to invest in growth. And you can grow your way out um, of a, of a substantial burn, you know, as we did. It just, it's kind of by automagic, you know, you start growing that percent a year and you, you just, you fill, fill it in. And I should mention that, you know, our, our CFO who actually joined before me, Mike Sheridan, the only person that still directly reports to me that reported to me when I joined is our CFO. But he had already put in place a lot of the fixes. So when people say, oh my gosh, you're burning 150 million and a couple of years later, you're breaking even, how'd you do that? A lot of that had been set in motion, but it you just had hadn't happened yet. a playbook in mind that you were able to jointly implement. Exactly. And I think that really put us on the right track. But that was a key thing. There was an expense control issue and figuring out a long-term model. 
Uh, the second big issue is that we were still growing well, but not on plan. And we had some work to do to really revamp how we thought about our sales structure and our sales organization. But again, all manageable problems that if you just bring an analytic approach and do a little, get a little data, do a little analysis, you can sort of see where those opportunities are. So there were some fairly straightforward things that really unlocked that and got us to a point where we'd start hitting all our quarterly goals. For the founders out there who are listening that may be about to bring in a CEO or thinking about it, um, how can they make that person more successful? There's a whole different discussion around the decision itself, but assuming they're, they're making that decision, what are the things that they can do to make that relationship with you more successful and their shares more valuable ultimately? Yeah. I mean, I actually think it's a part that we all have to get used to, that we have a range, right? And we got a range and most of us are not going to be you know, Bill Gates. And, and so you kind of got to know, you know, the lanes you can play in. And I think it's super healthy to have a board if you're a founder that says, we're going to help you. We're not going to compete with you on this, but we're going to help you see when it is and what it is you need to bring in. So the thing, advice I would give is be unbelievably clear on what it is you're bringing in and how it's going to change. Are you bringing in a COO who over time is going to maybe grow into the CEO? Well, then how much time, what scale before we say that person is ready? And what are the characteristics that are going to make us realize explicitly that person in the transition is ready? If you're just bringing in a direct CEO, what is your role going to be? And is the person coming in saying they're going to report to you as the founder and you're really going to manage that person? Or are you tapping out and they're going to report to the board? Getting clarity on that, because most of the issues I see is when people are too polite ambiguity and ambiguity kills you. Facts. Ambiguity is exactly it, because people usually are being polite and they don't want to take on that conversation. So they kind of agree to leave it ambiguous. And that is what causes most of the challenges, um, because it just keeps going and festering. If you think through then th this transition for founders who are uh, bringing someone in, maybe handing over the keys in many ways, and uh, and getting comfortable stepping back, um, do you have thoughts on the roles and responsibilities for a founder who stays in? I would say that most people find it very difficult. Most founders find it very difficult to say, I used to call all the shots. There was probably a little bit of a cult built around me. And now I'm going to hand the keys to someone else. And when the people, the loyalists come back and they say, hey, can you believe what this guy's doing or this gal's doing? And don't you think we should talk about it? And can I have a second? Can now can I talk to mom versus dad? Um, it's really hard to say, nope, I've passed that off. And, you know, I'm no longer engaged that way because they love the place. Sure, it's they like to solve problems and to help execs and, they hired. And they love that place because it was their baby. Yes. So I, I generally am not a huge recommender of that approach. It's funny, you know, uh, uh, Jack Welch, you know, just passed away. I was thinking about one of the great things I thought he did, which was saying, when I retire, I'm not going to join the board and hang around because he knew how big of a profile, right? You know, he had yeah, that shadow uh, was tall. There's no CEO in the world that would have, you know, the ability to be in that shadow and really run. And so um, I think in general, even the move to become chair, I don't know. I don't think it's a great move. Founders really built a business. I think if they want to let go, they can go into a support role, like you said. They could be. Some people are great with customers. Some people can be focused on product strategy. But they should be in a very specific function and get out of sort of the governance of the business, or it's really hard to make that uh, that transfer. When you think about the uh, the last several years with the DocuSign journey, was there a, a near death experience or a crisis point where you? Literally drove home that night saying, "I'm not sure we're going to get through this," um, or where you said, "You know, the the impairment 
for customers or, or company may be near catastrophic? Did you have outages you had to deal with? Did you have fatal product pushes, things like that? Is there a moment you can reflect on that was really challenging and forced you to come together more as a team? No. Uh, we never had that the responses. I got plenty of them. But uh, at, uh, at DocuSign, it is, again, I mean, it's such a strong company with such a strong culture with great people. It is the easiest company in the world to run. It's not that there's not work to do, but there aren't those kinds of challenges. I'll give you just an example on the outages piece. Had some significant challenges at responses on that front, including uh, a holiday outage one year. And remember, 55% of our business, yeah, 55% of our business retailers sending, as you said, those holidays. And I spent three days not sleeping. I, I don't mean like not able to sleep. I mean because I was on a call in some geography of the non-stop, world with a customer 24/7. nonstop for three days. And then going back to the product team and figuring out from the ops team what I could say for my next 27 calls around the world. And horrible experience when you're letting down your customers. No, nothing feels worse, right, than letting down your customers. And I got to DocuSign, and I was like, okay, we're going to, you know, belt and suspenders. I want to I want to dig in Get deep. Get prepared for this because I've prepared. seen, I've seen I was like, guys, I know this. And I came in and was blown away. And, you know, we have 99.999% uptime with no maintenance windows. We're not in the public cloud. It's almost exclusively on our own infrastructure. And I thought, that's crazy. Who does that anymore? And the answer is if you want to be able to go to your customers and say, I can give you that level of service. So if you're like a T-Mobile that says you can't get a T-Mobile phone unless you go through, if you're in the store, they got our, the, the pads. If you go to the phone, they're coming through DocuSign. If you go to the economy, everything goes through. If we're down, you cannot get a T-Mobile phone. So to, to have that kind of service you know, provision to someone, you basically have to say, we're going to make this massive investment with triple redundancy is what we've done. It's expensive. Um, but I'll tell you, I've been here over three years. I've not gotten one call that said we have a significant systems issue and it's affecting you know our customers' ability to use the platform. So that's it. I mean, there's just there's, there's been nothing at DocuSign that uh, that uh, kind of keeps you up like that. That's an impressive statement. I'm glad yeah. you added the responses color to that because um, I don't think people understand in the early founding days what it means to be mission critical, yeah. and that's a privilege of being a cloud provider is designing um, yourselves into core business processes, so much so that entire workflows and companies are built upon you. But the trade-off of that is an outage for you is an outage for all of your customers in many ways. Yep. And the downstream implications are, are catastrophic for them uh, many times and maybe uh, relationship ending it at minimum. So let's then flip to the uh, the IPO journey and the success phase, if you will, from the from the outside perspective of DocuSign. And uh, to make the numbers easy here, let's think of this as when you joined DocuSign, it was you know low billion dollar valuation, you know one two three depending on the day or, or the mood. And today, a few short years later, the company's you know call it sixteen billion plus or minus, well into the double digit billions. And so people look at this and say. 10 to 12 years of history to create a billion of value. Three years now later, you created north of 10 billion plus of, of incremental value. What did you and the team unlock in those few short years that had been latent and so valuable under the covers in this great DocuSign entity? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few things. I do think we got to this consistency in our business and it's been sort of all over the map. I told you, high, high growth. Overperform, underperform. Yeah, and then miss quarters for a while and then massive burn. And it, it was a little crazy. And so it was sort of bringing some maturity, 
Um, that's a code word for just being old. You know, that's what I, what I bring. The gray hair helps. Yeah, gray hair helps a lot. But we bring in some consistency. Um, we've started to scale, bring a scaled management team that had a little more experience at some scale. And I think was great. I think that was a key piece of it. The second piece is we were an e-signature company. And e-signature is still the most important thing that we do. And when people say e-signature, they think DocuSign. Right? People don't even say e-signature. They say DocuSign. It. It's a verb. But um, you know, I brought in Scott Ulrich, who was the first person I hired at Responses and the first person I hired at DocuSign. And he came in and did the exact same thing he did in transitioning Responses from an email marketing company to a marketing cloud and changing people's perceptive about what that could be. He came in and said, this is a signature company? And said, no, not really. It's a DocuSign agreement cloud. We're going to build the next big cloud computing area. And in doing that, it's given us a vision and a path so we could do an acquisition like Spring CM and develop CLM capability. We just announced last week an AI acquisition, SEAL software. And these are things that we're doing to fill out that broader strategy. So we're not a fantastic application, which is what we were, which is awesome and amazing. And it could have been a great, you know, stand, we could have done e-signature alone and grown for years and years and years and been fantastic. But we changed the game and said, let's make this an important platform. And that has been a huge part, I think, of that value creation because we've sort of expanded the TAM. And so investors look at it now and say, wow, you guys continue to grow at good rates. We could see that happening, you know, for decades, um, you know, as opposed to years. Um, and the last thing I'd say to that is it totally inspires the employees. So people now think they're working at, you know, a hot company uh, and not a company that's going hot cold, but it's just going to be straight hot. So those are the things I would think that we've done to unlock the value. And, and by the way, SaaS valuations have done all right in that time period. So we had a little nice market behind us. Multiples have, have helped a bit for everyone involved, but uh, certainly the operational performance has been um, stellar. And you mentioned a few things there in terms of this crossover from private to public that uh, I think are worth repeating or, or drilling down into more. Um, one of them is the evolution of the go-to-market motion. Um, the second is kind of the TAM expansion. And then the third is trying to drive efficiency at the same time, which uh, listeners may think are at odds with each other. And so how do you think through this Goldilocks question of what's um, what's enough but not too much in terms of setting the vision and how many horizons out and um, you know how big to swing and at the same time trying to balance sales rep productivity, trying to balance you know corporate losses, whether you're an enterprise business trying to come down market or things. How do you drive strategy and prioritization during these times when you when you have to trade off all these variables? You know, I think one of the biggest things that executive leadership can provide is the ability to bifurcate the discussion into which things are really competing with each other and which things are independent. Having a great vision, in my mind, should not be competing with being an attractive grower. In fact, I think the great vision is gonna create an opportunity to enhance the growth. And I would say the perspective is if you get down to each of those discussions as sort of a two-prong option, you can get your people to come back and pull the data together because you've, you've framed the question in a way they can understand it and make a good trade-off. And so that's what I think of my job often. You know, I talk about a lot about it's an inverted pyramid. I don't sit at the top of DocuSign and tell 4,000 people what to do. I sit at the bottom of 4,000 people and say, how do I enable them to do their business well? How can I get the information to them so they can make great decisions? Is it Steve Jobs? Who was the first person to say, we don't hire great people, smart people to tell them what to do. We hire smart people so they'll tell us what to do. I think it was Jobs. Um, but if no one knows that, it was me. As you reflect on that now with the benefit of hindsight, what would you have done differently if you could have replayed um, your first couple of months or even years at DocuSign to get there faster or better? Well, you know, one of the funny adages you hear a lot in uh, 
in business, particularly in Silicon Valley, when someone says, hey, did you make a change? Did you think, you know, Byron wasn't the right guy and you changed? Well, yeah, I did. We made that change. He said, do you wish you'd done it sooner? And everyone goes, yes. And it really annoys me because it's, if you think about this, the premise of the question, if you take all the people that you eventually determine, you know, weren't right. But when you come to the conclusion. Yeah. And now he said, from that sample set, should you have done it sooner? Well, in general, I would say the things that I wish that I'd done differently in hindsight, there were things I took too, too much time on. And almost all the things that I take too much time on, which I think is true for the vast majority of them, are people issues. You, you know the answer. Or actually, I go through this process of you have a hypothesis, you start collecting data, you get seven data points, six of them confirm that you want to make a change. It doesn't necessarily mean terminating someone. It could just be changing someone's responsibilities or bringing in someone to augment. There's, there's a whole set of things. It's not about firing people all the time. Um, but you need to make a change. And um, there were two or three situations with personnel that I should have done sooner. And the only reason I'd say, so the hindsight is not fair, but I go back and I say, I knew that. I should have known. I, I that did was know. Clear. No, I did know. I knew, and my whatever my, I don't know, concern about the person, or I'm trying to make it sound like I'm a good person in that answer, right? It could just be my stubbornness. It could be any number of things. My inability to pull the trigger, I didn't do. And most of them in DocuSign's case didn't lead to any giant problems. Um, but to your point, we would have gotten there better, faster. Um, the one area that I always say that I'll never do, and there were a couple of situations that I should have been faster on, were culture issues. So uh, people who aren't living our values. An individual who is impacting your culture. Yeah. It could just be their role or it could be their, having, having them in the company. Uh, and there were a couple of situations where I, I knew it and I moved too slowly on it. And that's the part that you'll never know how bad the problem was because it doesn't show up, right? No, People don't report the behavior and so we underestimate the impact that the bad culture actors are having. And so, you know, the whole, like, if a customer complains about something, you know that probably 10 people had the same experience. Sure. And when the same employees in the culture side. Culture side employee comes and says, hey, this person's not living our values. They're not the only person who had that experience with them. So those are the only couple that, that I'd, I'd be sort of mad at myself about. Most of the other ones, I was either too lazy, too stupid, too slow, and probably should have done them faster. And then that would be the right answer. There's nothing. I know it sounds crazy. There's nothing that I look at that we've done and say, that was a big mistake. We, we shouldn't have zigged there. We should have zagged. We should have done something differently. A lot of testing and trying things out, but that's, you, you, know, you have to sure. have little those, failures. Those, you right? recover yeah. from those decisions. And you should be taking some of those little failures. If you're not getting little failures, you're not, you're not trying. So you touched on prioritization before, and I want to make this a little more personal in terms of how you prioritize your time. Can you talk through your average day with our listeners just in terms of blocks of time and how you're spending your hours and what you try to get out of it and make it personal from from working out to interviewing candidates, those sorts of things. After being through this several times now, um, what's the method that works for you? Well, so two thoughts for it. One is something, I don't know why I'm talking so much about Bill Gates, but um, he was at a conference or something, but he made this comedy because he does a calendar check where they would look at each other's calendars and say, what are you spending your time on? And so I'll answer your question about where I think I'm spending my time. But the most important message I'd have for you is have somebody who you trust in your business that can sit with you and say, what are you spending your time on? And you go back to them, what are you spending your time like on? Like a pure executive. To yeah, be, an outsider to say, let's talk it. about it. Let's just look at it and talk about it and force you to say out loud, oh, I do email for this many hours, or, oh, I have an open-door policy and spend this much time on this. Or, and I think if you do that, you'll answer the question yourself. So for me, I don't have good boundaries. So if someone shows up at my office or someone sends me an email asking me for something, 
I say yes. And so that's the kind of thing where I do that. I, one of the things that's really powerful, I tell employees, so if you're going to be in, near my office or you want to stop by, say hi, ask, tell me what's going on in your business, send me an email if you want. I reply to all emails before I go to bed. So I have that policy of cleaning out the email. And but, but part of that, how do you say no then? So for that person, for that employee that you like, you want to spend time with and you just can't, what does that email reply to that person look like where you don't feel like a jerk in doing it? Yeah, I think the challenge is you have to be able to set that boundary for the second time. And so I don't have the boundary the first time. I say, hey, happy to help. In the future, I need you to do this. And then the, the second area for me is being really clear uh, with people that what your your format is. And so we have all hands meetings every quarter where I speak to the entire you know company. I also go around to our big offices and do town halls. And people understand that's the time to do it. So you sort of try to drive people into the lanes where you've allocated the time. So that would say the bound trying to set boundaries for the person that admits that he's he's weak at that is probably the biggest piece for me. Before we go to the speed round, um, I do have one last question for you though on DocuSign culture. What does DocuSign's culture with the community mean to you, and how have you shaped that? I can't take too much credit. DocuSign had the DocuSign Impact you know, organization when I joined, and that was an opportunity. Then we became a pledge 1% company right before we went public, and all of a sudden, uh, that 1% ended up being about $30 million. Now we had a funded uh, organization, and we've done a lot with that, a lot with the DocuSign for Forests, and we kind of... You know, I went to with uh, Jane Goodall to the World Economic Forum last year. But the part that is the soul of our culture really is like impact day. And so once a year in November, we get all of our offices, we get our employees to go out and work in our communities. People say, I'm proud to work at DocuSign because we're committed to, you know, giving back to our communities. And I just actually announced yesterday, um, I made a decision to give all of my future equity grants uh, at DocuSign to charities in the places where we have employees. We're building a new boys and girls club here in San Francisco in the Sunnydale you know, with that money, and um, I'm super excited. I had this epiphany at responses years ago. I don't know why I had it, but I said, you know what, this is the best job I've ever had. And I felt like I was doing the work of my life. And I decided that, that needed to be a theme that we needed to try to make every employee be in a situation that it's the best work they've ever done. I'm not saying they're gonna be successful. You're not, of course you're not gonna get 100% success, but you should be saying, my goal as a manager is to have every one of my reports be doing the best work of their life. That's We actually created now a program at DocuSign mm-hmm. called Work of My Life, and so all of our new manager training is focused on this. It's it's so rewarding, and it unifies people, again, around the culture. So that, if I was giving any advice to people, that would be a program to try to, in your own way, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be called that, but find that way to say, our people are our most important asset, and we're going to build our policies and our human resources approach to make sure that people do the work of their life here. So let's transition over to the rapid fire, the last segment here. I'm going to uh, ask you a series of questions. I want you to respond with the first things that come to your mind, quick answers. So here we go. You ready? Dan Springer, what is your go-to karaoke song? YMCA or any other song that you can't possibly mess up. What was your first job? I had a paper route in Seattle, Washington. Go-to place to eat in the Bay Area. It will be Bay, the new Japanese restaurant that we're building by the Salesforce Tower that I got tricked into investing by Mark Benioff. That will be my favorite one, and I will lose all of my money. What's the go-to must-read book for founders out there starting a company? If I had to say two books that I would recommend, one business book would be In Search of Excellence, which I still think is the best one to think about what you're trying to build a business, built to last, even though yep, absolutely. there. And then the second one is I would pick a fiction book like The Great Gatsby, 
a book about business should be a book about life and understanding what's important, but uh, but uh, about a novel that talks about people's struggle to find what's important in life. What is your favorite app on your phone outside of email or calendar? I would actually say chat, because that's how I communicate with my kids. What cloud product was most critical for you in building the business outside of your own? It's the salesforce.com would be the answer, the SFA from Salesforce. If you're not at DocuSign 10 years from now, where will you be? I have two answers. Sorry, it's one of two. I will be re-quote-unquote retired, uh, helping entrepreneurs build businesses in some sort of advisory capacity because I was just too damn old and kicked me out of an operating role in Silicon Valley, which is probably the highest probability. But my dream would be five, ten more years here, and then I get one more shot. And someone would come to me with a company and say, even though you're old as dirt, we think you got one left in you, and take one more swing. Last question. If you could send yourself a voice memo from today to your prior self at the start of DocuSign, what advice would you have? Wow. I think I would say, enjoy it more. It's going to work out great. Don't stress about it. And that's going to be the key is enjoy it more. I think that's a great parting thought to our founders everywhere. Dan Springer, you're awesome. Thank you for being with us today. Always awesome to see you and extremely appreciative of your mentorship to founders out there and your leadership as a human, as an executive. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be here. 